welcome to the Loop Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Fran Langham, Global Head of Demand Gen, and this is the podcast that deep dives what works today when it comes to marketing to the modern buyer. So I am delighted to be joined by one, well, not only by one, but two guests this week. Um, so Lee Maroney and Grace Ann McDonald, the co-founders at Storybook Marketing. So I'm going to kick off by letting you guys introduce yourselves. So please go ahead. Well, thank you for having us, first of all. Um, yeah, a little bit of background on us. We are uh, the co-founders of a demand generation agency called Storybook Marketing. And what we do and what Storybook Marketing does is we really are that combination between strategy and execution. So we work with startup clients to help build, manage, and scale demand generation programs. And we do it in a very channel agnostic way and in a very boutique, small family practice, real sort of, you know, hand-holding way. And that's our real specialty. Um, Background-wise, Grace-Anne, do you want to go for your background first? Yeah. Um, so as we always kind of like to say, um, we sort of came from opposite ends of the spectrum um, when it comes to demand gen. So I came from the sales world. Um, I started out managing sales development teams and then went into RevOps for a minute before coming into demand gen. Um, and Liam sort of came from the other spectrum of demand gen, which I'll let him speak to. So we sort of met in the middle and we've always brought that really complementary um, skill set into the work that we do, as well as that sort of dual sales marketing perspective, which I know is one of the focuses of our conversation today. And I'm super excited to speak more about it because I do think how sales and marketing work together and that relationship, particularly how outbound works is so, so important um, to having um, good demand gen. Amazing. Yeah. And like Kristen said, I, I came from the, the, the pure marketing side. There's this running joke in B2B marketing that like nobody who's in B2B marketing actually went to school for marketing. I'm the one idiot who clearly did because I went to college <laughs> for it. So I am I am the academic textbook marketer while everybody else is looking around going like, nah, that's that's throw that stuff away. <laughs> Great, I love it. Yeah, I I also well I did not study marketing, so there you go. <laughs> Um, cool. So just to kick off, we were just chatting about this a little bit offline. So you referred to like demand gen, um, you kind of like categorized it as like on ramps and off ramps. I would just love to kind of like dive into that a little bit. Um, just kind of what you mean by that essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to speak to it, Liam? Go for it. Um, so Essentially, our point of view on demand gen is, you know, firstly, we we don't want to gatekeep good demand gen. You know, one of the reasons we started Storybook was that we wanted to make good demand gen and doing good demand gen more accessible and more easily understood by everyone. And our p- point of view on demand gen is that it's not easy. Demand gen is hard, but it doesn't have to be complex. And so we're not trying to oversimplify it per se, but we do want to sort of demystify like sort of these ideas around, you know, capture versus creation and lead gen versus demand gen and kind of what is what. And this idea of on ramps and off ramps um, is that ultimately on ramps are the ways in which buyers find out about you. And this is, these are some of the things that folks typically associate with demand gen, such as like advertising um, and, you know, 
paid media. They're the ways that buyers find out about who you are and what you do. Off ramps are those conversion points. And the question of attribution is gonna be a big one here. Um, and sort of what's measurable, what do you measure, what can you measure, where do you force attribution or, you know, and these off ramps being those conversion points, these are things like inbound or demo requests. Outbound is also a very important off ramp, a very important conversion point. Events is another one. And the really important point here is that buyers are always gonna choose the off ramp that suits them best, the off-ramp of their preference. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you want to try to force everyone through this inbound demo request channel, buyers are always going to choose the off-ramp that they prefer. And so um, I'll sort of pause there because I know that's a lot of conceptual um, speak. Is there anything that you'd want to elaborate on that, that Liam? Like, I think it, it's funny when you think about like, especially when you're in a program and you're and you're looking at like how people go through it. Like, firstly, people decide the exit points that they want to take. Frustrating as it is, like marketing is not something you can control. You can't move people through. I mean, we've long since accepted that lead nurturing is not like a thing that really moves people from like one step to MQL to being ready. It just doesn't work like that. When people are ready to reach out, they reach out, and that's kind of some that we have come to this realization of in demand gen like collectively that like when people are ready to talk to you they will come but the problem is that they don't always come through an inbound channel they can be at a trade show and they can opportunistically see the booth and all of the work that demand gen has done up until that point can be the like oh i should talk to them while i'm here or you get the right timed outbound message or you get a cold call from an sdr and if the moment's right they're going to go like, yeah, actually, you know what? This is a good time. I will talk to you. Like that's people self-selecting their off-ramp into a conversation with you. But where I think we've narrowed it down too much into Mansion is this idea that that only means I'm going to go to the website and fill out a demo request form. And that's just one of all of the other ways that they can come and talk to you. Yeah, that's super interesting because I think, um, yeah, my my narrative has definitely been that. Um, I've been posting on LinkedIn a long time about it and I, I always summarize it where, you know, we're driving inbound demo requests and when we talked about the shift to demand gen, what are you tracking? We're tracking the velocity of inbound demo requests and if they're going up, we know we're doing the right things. So actually when, um, you know, I did sort of learn a little bit more about the way you think about it, um, it did open my eyes to as you've just described, like these off ramps. So I guess my question, I'd, I'd love just to deep dive a little bit more into if it isn't just inbound and that's too narrow a focus, then how should we be thinking about that in terms of if we take outbound, how should we be like aligning with sales on that? How how do you see that fitting together? Yeah. I think the key here is that outbound and... Um, demand gen or the marketing function in my opinion the best way for these to work together is in this cyclical sort of symbiotic relationship um it's kind of that rising tides lift all boats mentality to where um you know they amplify one another like you think about demand gen running an abm strategy and um that always, I think, performs better when complemented by outbound. Um, I don't think you have to look far to come up with an example of 
a team outbounding to a company, and then you have a coincidental inbound kind of come in. And so the way that these two things kind of interact, um, activation pre and post event through an outbound team. And so it, it works in this sort of cyclical way. And of course, where it starts to get messy is when you think about attribution and you like, let's say you do have an, a team outbounding to a certain company and then you have an inbound come in who gets credit for that is kind of always the question. And then that's where I think that kind of competition for attribution is then what sorts, it, it's what starts to take a strategy in the wrong direction because you sort of wrap around how you're attributing and well, this team has to be credited for this and this team has to be credited for that. Um, when in reality, of course, it's easier said than done, but like that idea of like, it's all one number at the end of the day and it's all intended to be this like rising tides lift all boats type of effect. It all needs to work together. I remember, and I, I still like cringe when I think about this, when I was in-house at, at a few different companies, I used to get really disappointed when I would hear like the source was always an outbound sourced opportunity. Like it's such a terrible mentality when you think about it, but like I really did. And it's because it was almost like we didn't succeed. Like it was like marketing didn't get them to come in through the website. But when you talk to the salespeople, like outbound doesn't work if the people they're outbounding to have never heard of you and don't know what you do and don't have a good sense of that, how well you do it. Like demand generation assists that all the way. It just happens to be the way they came in. It's not about which one worked and which one didn't. It's about which was the channel that just happened to be the one they were most likely to come in through. Yeah, definitely. And I guess um, that kind of like, it's kind of like the whole thing about brand. Because I, like, I don't know if you, like, I'm way old now, but like 10 years ago, <laughs> when we talked about brand as a line item on our marketing budget, way back when it was PR stuff. It was like press releases. Should we get an agency on board? Should we not? And I think really like, the whatever you want to call however you want to like categorize demand gen and whatever you want to call it it has opened for me it's like open people's eyes up to realize that we need to invest a lot more in the create demand versus the capture demand as we refer to it um but just that brand awareness and that brand presence um is super important and the difficult thing with that is it's not tangible so it's not like oh we did this like amazing video series or this great podcast series really pushing our narrative and it's not tangible because you can't see it always in Salesforce um which kind of leads me on to my next question in terms of like attribution so it can be a bit of a controversial topic sometimes but if I guess if you were taking on a new client and you were setting um a DG strategy set like laying that out for them surely they always come to you and say, right, well, how do we attribute this? Because at the moment, um, you know, scenario could be at the moment we've got leads coming in and we just do it on volume of MQLs and how they track down the funnel. How do you kind of advise people to get started on attribution? So whenever we come in, one of the first things we always do is we, we do a program assessment and we look at well, let's look at how your program has worked up to date. And there's usually two angles that come through in this. The first is, where has most of your pipeline come from? Because when you go through that exercise, you very often find what are the on-ramps that are very, or the off-ramps, I should say, that are very specific to your business. Because it's different for all businesses. Like, this is where 
you know, you'll come in and you'll see a lot of, and it depends on the stage of the company as well. Very often, earlier stage companies, they'll come in and they'll say, well, most of our pipeline today comes from outbound and trade show events, which makes sense, but they're not scalable. They're extremely expensive and they want to start making shifts. But at the end of the day, you also have to figure out, like, how do your customers tend to find their way in? Because the last thing you should do is throw throw that out with the bathwater and say, well, we're going to focus on driving more inbounds. If they come through outbound, make outbound work better. That's the first place you go. Improve the channels that are working before you try and relocate your audience to a channel they're not already coming in through. The other side of it is it's those on-ramps. It's to try and make sure that on-ramps at the end of the day are how you are getting to your audience. Like It's the way you're reaching them where they are. And the last thing you should be doing is also treating that like it's an attribution channel. Because what you can end up doing is you can end up judging a channel for the very wrong reasons. Like, I mean, a perfect example is like, we're on this podcast because we know that our audience listens to podcast this podcast. In fact, like a lot of times we come into conversations and people will say to us, oh, Cognizant is doing a really good job at Dimension. We want to like, that's what we want to do. Like, so you're the gold standard that comes in. And so from us, this is a really effective on-ramp for us to be reaching our audience. Now, there's no attribution will come from this, but sometime down the line, they may come inbound and they'll say, oh yeah, we heard you on talking to Fran and it was a great conversation. Like those two things are very separated. So when we come in and we're doing anything with a program, it's always make sure you're not judging on-ramp channels as though they're off-ramp channels because then you've set them up to fail immediately. And it's make sure you understand what your off-ramp channels are and then you can separate them because here's the really important bit that we keep coming back to with people is that depending on the complexity of the purchase, maybe like 90% of your efforts are not designed to be conversion efforts. They're designed to be reaching your audience, engaging with your audience, educating your audience. And then there's only a very small amount of it is where all of that demand capture off-ramp activity actually takes place. And what I'd also add to that is I don't I don't think it's marketers' faults for coming into this space where everything needs to be measured. I think it comes from this sort of larger systemic pressure to show value and show ROI in order to make the case for increased budget and increased resources. I think it's just kind of a byproduct of the position marketing teams have been put in over the last, excuse me, over the last couple of years. And so I just want to caveat that, like, you know, I have a lot of empathy for the position that a lot of marketing teams are in right now to show measurement for everything, to attribute value and ROI to everything, because that's the only way they've been able to justify getting more resources. And so it's, I think, a much larger evolution that has to happen in our industry. Um, But I completely, you know, echo everything Liam said that it's that trying to force everything to be attributable is where you start to kind of go in the wrong direction. Yeah, I agree. I agree on that. I think um, you have to kind of get um, Alice Alcimo always says you have to kind of get comfortable being uncomfortable, like with the fact that you might produce something um, and, you know, you might not immediately see anything in Salesforce or whatever CRM we're using to show that this has had um, any kind of like impact. So, and I guess like the mindset shift as well, just from senior leadership and board members has to be that, you know, there is all, you don't always have to attach hard numbers to everything so I think a good 
example is when we switched to demand gen alongside our figures, like Alice would actually um, pull up demand gen activity. So emails from people saying, this has been great. We love this video. We love Cognizant. Um, we actually did like a video at the end of last year, which just showcased every single almost like qualitative bit of feedback we'd had from key players in our audience saying this great essentially so it's almost like it is proving some like positive impact but it's not those it's not your typical charts and graphs that you um that you always like tend to see in these in these slide decks I guess which are probably the same template that people have been using for years so I do I totally get you guys on that um I suppose like do you get when you have this conversation though do you get the first question that came to my mind is yeah totally get it but if if we're saying like we can't attribute this type of activity, how do you know which like um, I guess on is it the on ramp activity that you should invest in? Like, so if we're saying as part of the on ramp activity, as X company is going to do a podcast and then they're going to do a video series or something like that, and we're saying okay, cool, well, we don't worry about attribution there. We can't attribute everything. How do they know if they if they've got two or three things going, plates spinning? How do they know? How would you advise them to what to double down on and things like that if we're not being super strict on attribution? It's a great question. And I think the reason that we try and simplify it down to this on-ramps, off-ramps thing is because it kind of shifts the way you think about how you choose those channels. Because if you think about everything like an attribution channel, then you're going to choose everything from a conversion point of view. How can I gate things? How can I drive leads? Whereas if you start thinking, okay, off-ramps are how people will convert. They're going to be the the places where pipeline gets created as your last touch. On-ramps is just how do I get to them so I can communicate my message to them? That perspective changes into, well, okay, well, where are they? What are they reading? Who are they listening to? Who are they being influenced by? And it's more about how do we take part in that conversation as opposed to which is the most cost-effective lead score? Like that That's the wrong way of thinking about it. The right way of thinking about it is, well, where are they where they're already consuming content and how do we be there? And that's a totally different way of thinking about channel selection. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so I guess just thinking about the, so we're kind of like, we're saying like, this is a mindset shift that you have to make. We have to be like free ourselves of like hard data attribution every single time. In this kind of like demand gen world then, what does it, what does like a typical structure look like in terms of, for you guys, in terms of the marketing team? And, and even the sales team, right, if we're thinking about the whole revenue function, it's almost like, what does that structure look like? And how should those teams interact almost well, daily, you know, really? Oh, that's a, a big question. It's a big one. It's yeah. almost like two and one. I'm sorry. Went <laughs> I went a bit wild on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I guess let's just take demand gen. Like, how do you think the demand gen team should be structured? Um, I speak a lot about this in terms of, Recently, we've brought content execs into the demand gen function um, as opposed to content sitting separately. Um, It's worked. Well, it didn't actually work initially, but we've since we've worked the framework and it's working very well for us now. How how do you guys kind of see that setup versus a traditional setup? Do you have thoughts on this, Jane? I do. I have so many. I'm trying to organize them. (laughs) Um... I mean, you know, I think it's going to vary company to company. 
everybody, you know, every business is different. What makes sense for every business is different. But um, in my opinion, those off ramps. So what we discussed is, you know, the the main off ramps being really <clears throat> events outbound and then inbound. The ability to execute across those functions should reside within DemandGen, or at least be able to be influenced by DemandGen, because those are your conversion points. So if you want to talk about attribution, those are your conversion points. And then the other piece of that in terms of just how would you structure a team, whatever those on-ramps are for your audience. So like, let's, let's say it's a podcast and I don't know, some type of, you know, paid media, um, again, the ability to execute on those channels needs to reside within DemandGen. So if we think about the on-ramp, off-ramp levers, if you're looking at it from that perspective, the DemandGen team needs to be structured in a way where they have influence um, and the ability to execute across those channels. Would you add anything to that, Liam? Yeah, I think the thing, and I say this as, as two people who have had the demand generation title in our careers, is that demand generation isn't a person it's not like it, it involves lots of other teams like you said it involves executives like it's part of the overall go-to-market motion and i think where we've seen it go wrong is where it gets really rigidly created like oh you've got that's the demand gen thing over there and it's like is content in it or is it not are the bdrs part of it or are they not that's that creates internal competition in the wrong way it's more about how do you make sure that demand generation can influence whatever functions it needs to and take place? Because when you segment them too much, you end up with them being against each other. Like outbound being, okay, well, if outbound doesn't, if the SDR team doesn't sit on the demand gen team, does that mean now it's not a demand generation channel? No, absolutely not. Like completely not. It's more about like to what GA said, once you figure out what those off ramps are and get everyone aligned with well, as long as they come through one of these, that's a successful outcome for the company. How do we influence the ways that they best do that? That's ultimately what you have to try and accomplish. Yeah, like I'm a huge fan of having SDR BDR teams within the demand gen function because it eliminates mm -hmm. that sort of team competition for attribution and then outbound um, generated meetings and pipeline are part of that demand gen number as are events generated meetings and pipeline. And then of course inbound. So it's all sort of under that umbrella of demand gen. And that's the job of demand gen is to generate awareness, build that top of funnel pipeline that the sales team then takes and works. That's interesting. Like the one team, one dream kind of thing. Um, all like owning that revenue um, target. I've actually never worked. I've never worked in an organization where the SDR team sits in DG. Um, do you think that's, that's quite new or has it always been around or um, I've died on that hill when I joined <laughs> I like I I still like if you want me to run demand and I want that team like I, and that was because I yeah. knew how much it benefited me maybe it was self-serving but uh, yeah I was willing to put up a fight for that one I do think it's newer um within the last couple of years um I'm hearing about it much more it's much more of a, a debate or a conversation um whereas you know, I think five years ago, it was always on the sales team. And I think recently yeah. now people are asking the question, should it be part of demand gen? Um, I'm seeing it more commonly, but I still know a whole host of SDR, BDR managers um, that roll up to a sales leader. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so um, 
it, just when you said it then, it just sounded also wonderfully simple that everything just sits on the and then so much easier said than done, like I said. <laughs> Absolutely, because we um so at Cognizant we have the uh, we have like a strong like MDR function who deal with the inbound demo requests that come in and and obviously like you have to it's different um product offerings will have like a different setup right so um and I think with ours it's like more like high volume so that we do get a lot of inbounds just given the nature of our product so um we have MDRs that deal with those requests um the deal cycle is relatively quite short as well so we're not talking about those big enterprise 18 month deal cycles so Mm -hmm. it makes sense for us but then I do see like that the SDR team are separate and they sit um and they and they deal you know they outbound and and they are super successful and it's almost like um I would always worry I guess just thinking about now bringing them under demand gen if that were ever an option I wonder if they would be almost like not be as proactive because they we would be a bit of a crutch right so would they then automatically start relying too heavily on the inbounds or relying too heavily on the marketing team it's literally a thought that's just popped mm-hmm. in my head now <laughs> yeah. I, i'm eager to talk about this um i feel like you have a thought Liam. no 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 this is your this is your world i want to hear your thoughts on this <laughs> Um, I, so the way that I've worked with it most recently, you know, prior to Storybook when we were working in-house was I was running demand gen, but then I had an SDR manager that rolled up into me. Um, and so they still managed that team and they still were very motivated to properly execute on outbound through that team. So the BDR team was still motivated to do outbound. I think comp structuring is important here as well. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I think needs to be structured in a way that incentivizes a BDR team to still do outbound. A certain piece of their comp still has to come from outbound. They're still very motivated to do that. And if you have a BDR manager that is motivating them to do that, though that BDR manager is part of a demand gen function, I think that in and of itself removes that kind of competition for attribution because then what ultimately happens is they're outbounding to folks and then you get an inbound from that company you can now funnel it to that bdr or whoever you maybe you have one sdr that's just handling inbound either way the, the the attribution for that conversion still goes to the demand gen team because you have inbound and outbound part of demand gen and any sales team i've ever worked with they they just want pipeline they don't really care where it comes from. Um, and so I think a lot of times we can be our own worst enemy when it comes to sort of yeah. that attribution. Yes, it's almost like keeping it for yourself because otherwise it won't get attributed to you versus sending it to the person that's most qualified or the most appropriate person to deal with that request or whatever that might be. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's a definitely a, it's a larger conversation within an organization around how to... S- kind of set that expectation between inbound and outbound and even events, how that plays in generating, you know, that top of funnel pipeline. I've often heard, you know, there's no way outbound is a demand gen strategy. Like outbound can't be our demand gen strategy. And Liam and I have died on this hill that it is a very important piece of a demand gen strategy. And it's about setting that expectation that let's say as a demand gen team of all the maybe pipeline you've generated or top of funnel pipeline you've initiated in a certain quarter, let's say 60% of it comes from outbound. 30% came from inbound and the rest came from events or sort of, you know, miscellaneous. 
And being able to position that and show that that doesn't mean you failed at demand gen. That means everything you're doing to generate awareness that you can't see, that you can't measure, that is influencing this outbound team and enabling this outbound team to outbound more easily and also fuel the inbounds that are likely coming. You know, it's that kind of outbounding to a team or I'm sorry, a company who doesn't respond to you. And then you see an inbound come in and it's being able to sort of have that conversation and set that narrative that, you know, regardless of how it splits out amongst those things, it doesn't mean you're failing as, as a demand gen marketer. This is how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be this kind of symbiotic flow. And like you think about companies where they're not in an established category, where it really isn't a well-known purchase inbounds are rare in that situation. Like you don't have floods of people coming to your door if you're not, people aren't used to buying you. Now you can succeed through demand gen if like take that scenario where it's not a known category, it's not a well-established purchase, but you are really doing a good job of getting to those people. You're showing up in feeds where they are, you're educating them. Like you're not going to have this swell of inbounds, but that's where the right outbound to those people in the right way is where most of that pipeline will come from. Like there's almost like a gradual shift over time when categories get established that more and more inbounds become a bigger portion of it because there's there's a an educated audience who's educated on the category. So again, like to the point, like having all inbounds and no outbounds is not a sign of things going really well. It, it, that's a sign of maturity of a category in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I get what you say there. It does make sense. Um, I think like having that holistic approach, certainly, um, I don't know. I just think, yeah, I just remember like my first mark, few couple of first jobs, you know, like first marketing roles and um, yeah, the silos were just like ridiculous in terms of like the, like the structure and how we operated like marks. It was always marketing first sales, put it that way. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, so just, we've spoken, um, we touched on a little bit like we mentioned like a few tactics like dg tactics so we were saying like we talk about page talk about events and i think the main thing that we found is that the there is this kind of misconception that demand gen is just paid um paid social so that the organization or the company will just say right we're switching to demand gen and to be fair that's where we started that was our like that's where we could place our bets, right, on LinkedIn. So that's when we started introducing this DG approach. But I guess, yeah, I just want to hear a little bit more from you guys. Um, would you agree that it's a, like this misconception that, you know, DG is just le- like paid media, essentially? We would definitely agree on that. Yeah, uh, I mean, right. 100%. <laughs> and, it, and it, like... Paid is obviously an effective way of getting your message to people in a controlled way. Like that's obviously the benefit of paid. That's not to say like that's the only way to get to them. It comes back to where are they and are you showing up in those conversations? And you do have some audiences who are actively searching for stuff. And if you're not showing up there, you're not showing up where they are. Now, SEO may change massively with ChatGPT, but that's a different conversation. But then there's communities where people are actively spending time, where they're communicating with each other. If you're not a member, if you're not participating in those places, that doesn't necessarily have to be paid. That can just be 
actually being participants, having people in the company showing up, like having the the leadership team having a voice. Like it's all about where are they actually spending their time and who is influencing them? And are you taking place in those conversations? And are you educating them through those means? When you think of it through paid, it just, it creates an immediate bias where it's like, well, I have paid media budget, therefore my LinkedIn is my channel. I'm going to target my audience on LinkedIn. Not there's a lot of industries, particularly non-marketing buyers, yeah. they're not on LinkedIn at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this and is actually think... one. Of, yeah, go ahead. No, go for it. I know. I was just going to add that I think thinking of demand gen as just paid media would be like thinking of ABM as just taking a target list and handing it to sales and calling that ABM. Like it's such a myopic just single lane view of what is actually an entire strategy. Yeah, definitely. Were you get did you have something to add, Liam? I feel like you were gonna I would say I'm I'll, I'll get on my academic soapbox. This is where like I went to school for marketing is gonna come into play. The thing that's really I think we oversimplify like this like the whole demand generation, like creation versus capture idea. Like demand creation, like when you think about it, this is where I think we we, a lot of people go wrong in in Dimension because it's about, like you always hear like, oh, we got to create awareness and then we got to create affinity. That's how you create demand. Creating awareness is very, very difficult. And within awareness, there's this spectrum of what that actually means. And this is me getting slightly nerdy on this, but bear with me because it, I, it promises it's going somewhere. Brand awareness, if you go back to like the, the classic examples of brand awareness, Brand awareness doesn't just mean, oh, I've heard of you. There's a whole different series of steps that have to happen in between there. The first is actually just brand awareness. Like, hey, have you heard of this brand? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think I've heard of you. But the second ones are where you start getting into, well, what is your understanding of the brand? Like, do you know what we do? Do you know how we do it? Do you have an understanding of what problems we solve? That's a very specific demand generation problem. Like you can run ads everywhere and people go like, oh, I've seen your ads a bunch of times. And then you go like, what do we do? If they don't know, then there's no way to create demand because they don't understand what you do. And then when you get beyond that, there's what's called brand recall, which is where if someone is thinking of the problem that you solve, do they think of your brand as one of the ones that solve it, which is basically being in the consideration set. Like, oh, I need to have an email marketing platform. Oh, yeah, that's like these three vendors are the ones who do that. Like, that's a really important part of creating demand because they have to know when to think of you. And then the hardest part of all of it is that last bit, which is do they prefer your brand over the other brands? Everything in between that is demand generation. It's brand, but it's also demand generation. And if you think in terms of paid media, you only go, well, how do I get more people to hand over to the sales team? But if they haven't heard of your brand, if they don't understand what your brand does, if they don't know exactly what what solution you solve for, none of it matters. All of that is demand gen, and it's all strategically part of a strategy. Yeah. Look, I like that. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Marketing for you. should get you on the stage um (laughs) (laughs) so just um this is actually a very selfish question from me because I've been thinking about this for a while um so we I just want to get talk briefly about events so I've had roles where 
events has been the bread and butter of the strategy because it's been kind of like I've worked in a niche industry and it's high value like high contract values and the only kind of way to speak to these people is like face-to-face at events and then I've also worked in organizations like similar to Cognizant where the volume it's like slightly more transactional in that we're selling like b2b data so events are let's just say a great I just want to careful what I say here but a great brand play let's say um so I'm trying to work out now like in this DG world and in my, you know, while I'm now here at Cognizant, like what role should events play? And I just wonder, like, do you guys have any clients that are doing events particularly well? And, you know, are, are they adopting different strategies outside of, because when I used to go to events, it was like scanning badges and then I get the leads and I send them to sales and I like pester them to call those leads for like the next two weeks or something. I suppose like, should we be thinking, should we be doing, I guess it's different for each company, but if we are going to do events, how should we be thinking about doing them? I think the pre-event activation is sometimes mm. forgotten or right. the importance of it. Um, like you said, oftentimes it's get there, scan as many badges as you can, and then do a whole bunch of follow-up after the fact. And that's fine. That's, a, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that's like only half the picture. Like you're only sort of getting half of the value that you could be if you're not doing pre-event stuff. So some of the things that we're seeing really work well is really putting a lot of intention behind what you're doing before the event to drive people to the booth. So we've all been to trade shows. They're busy. They're chaotic. You know, whether you're exhibiting or you're attending, like, everyone's trying to get you to their booth to win a gift card or get a pair of socks. And it's just, you know, it's give people a reason to come to your booth. Um, And also what I've done before with, again, SDR teams in the past is have them reaching out, you know, to try to set up a specific meeting time to come by the booth, um, get, you know, maybe a one-on-one demo of the product. If this is something that you're evaluating this year, um, you know, if this is something that's on the radar for you and your team. So it, there's a couple of different points here where you have to really be able to distill the value of your product to the people you're reaching out to ahead of the event. Um, give them a reason to come by the, your booth um, and then, you know, try to make that kind of one-on-one connection. I think there's a lot of opportunity to do pre-event activation that's often um, often forgotten about. Yeah, makes sense. I also think it depends on what, the event is actually far in the minds of your buyers. And I remember we used to do this when when Grace and I worked together in-house where you would almost segment events into different types of events based on different purposes. Because I think there's, I can think of at least three reasons that events can be valuable. Like the first is like the fact that it's just where they're going to be. So it's a great place to set up meetings because you know they're there. So sometimes just from like the pre-event work from the sales perspective, it's a great place to just get some FaceTime with people. And that tends to be more effective than getting them on a call. Like that's a huge part in itself. We know you'll be there. Can we set up time? The second part is kind of the opportunistic thing where, you know, like people are wandering through the the exhibitor booth and you just manage to get the attention of people that you might not otherwise because they just happen to be there and you get lucky. And then the other one is like, you get on stage, you get to talk to people, you get to show your expertise while you're there. And some events can be more about one than others. It depends on the audience. It depends on how the sales team works. But like 
you can have events where as long as you spoke on stage and you delivered really compelling presentation, that might be a successful event purely because you delivered that message. There yeah. might be other ones where you don't have any speaking words just about we had a booth and we managed to have a few conversations and we got a few meetings to happen. Like it depends on why they're there and what they're looking to get out of it and what value you get from it. Yeah, defo. And I think, um, yeah, we started thinking about that in terms of it's, um, Grace, and as you said, it's kind of like what you do before the event, but then also during the event, you don't have to do the talk, but like record it or get like, if you have a video team or hire somebody to record it or use that as an opportunity. Um, if you're all, if you've got your sales team on a booth all day, um, get them to like record some content if that's relevant, right, to your audience. Like it's, you know, for us, like sales is our persona. So if our sales team are there, like we should, you know, like we should be doing that. But I think even if you met customers there, like take it as an opportunity to meet with them and book out um, a nice room and record a case study if they're going to be there, right? Mm -hmm. I suppose it's almost like trying to think outside the box in terms of like, getting more value than just like the lead collection, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. I will say Chili Piper does such a good job at creating content at events. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's like, and there's like a kind of a knock on psychological effect of that where it just sort of, firstly, it's content, it's great content, it's interesting, it looks different. But yeah. the other side is it reminds you that they're very actively part of all of these events and it kind of just makes them feel more, I don't say bigger, but like it, it's like, oh yeah, there they are at that trade show and that trade show. And it sort of like has a psychological effect of like, wow, they're like at all these shows, they must be big. And it's like all of these things have weird little knock-on brand awareness impact. Yeah, that's a, such a good point. So we yeah, we just what we were saying earlier, Liam and I um went to um the winter event, spring by winter, um in, in Austin and um it winter are um, a small company but it's amazing like the event that they put on and it it gave them that brand recognition but it also gave it that big company feel um and I must say as well like um the more I think about it it's like that human interaction as well like making a brand seem more human um you know you feel differently towards a brand when you've met I don't know, your account manager face-to-face or the sales team face-to-face. So maybe if you were making a choice, I mean, personally, like if I was making a choice over, you know, to go with one brand or another, I think I'd be largely swayed if I'd met um, some of the team face-to-face, right? As opposed to like just being on video, potentially anyway, like that's what I'm saying now. But I can give you the really tedious academic answer to this as well because i just love doing this there's it's funny because exactly what you said is actually a really important thing that doesn't get used a lot we're like when it comes to differentiation there are three different kinds of differentiation the first two are the ones everybody typically uses there is unique differentiation which is i have a feature that nobody else does or i do something in a way nobody does that's like the gold standard that nobody ever reaches because if you have something, people are going to copy it soon enough. The one that most of it takes place in is where most marketing happens, which is that comparative differentiation, which is they do it, we do it, but we do it better, faster, cheaper. We have different like functionality. The third one is the one that everyone ignores, which is what's called holistic differentiation, which is the intangible things like I like the people who work there more. They have values that resonate with me. That makes a huge difference. And when you see people who work at the organization and you see them 
at shows, you meet them at booths and you like them, that's a huge strength in brand. Another thing you can't attribute. No, <laughs> not can't. even a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, you could, ba- you could barely explain it without getting up in a soapbox like I do. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And do you know what? Just thinking about this, just summing up my thoughts on all these things, I do think that the one thing that we've done at Cognizant over the past couple of years is maybe it isn't like the big switch to like demand gen maybe it's just we've become more human as a brand because a lot of our demand gen activity has been us being really scared at first but now we just get up record videos put them out there if there's mistakes or bloopers like we just deal with it because we're we're you know we want to be action biased and get things out there and, and maybe that that has actually I've kind of overlooked that has actually made a massive difference um but yeah. Okay. Well, I have one final question because I won't keep you all day. Um, and it's a question we ask everybody. So don't worry. I've not, I've not suddenly thought of a really difficult question to end on. Um, so it's more just like, what would you, what would you guys say, uh, tell marketers to kind of start doing um, in this new DG world? And what would you tell them to stop doing? I know it's dependent on the company, but broadly speaking. Yeah. Hmm. Do you want to do you want to answer what they should stop doing, and I'll answer what they should start doing? All right, I like that way of doing it. Uh, I think they should stop trying to treat every marketing activity like it has to create a conversion of some kind. That is where most marketing gets judged incorrectly. It's where they end up creating programs that don't create any brand awareness of any kind. Marketing is not a conversion tactic. Demand generation is not a lead generation tactic stop doing that like it i would say what they should start doing is reporting on one number um which you could maybe say is a well stop competing for attribution but you know flipping that to something more positive i guess would would be start um kind of having sales and marketing pulling in the same direction um, and then that competition for attribution. Yeah, I like that. And then that goes to what you were saying earlier about like comp structures and all that kind of stuff. Like it needs to be very transparent and equal like across teams. Well, I guess you're saying like one revenue team. People are going to do what they're incentivized to do. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's where it starts is how do you incentivize both your sales and marketing teams Um to be doing the same thing. Yeah. Cool. I like that a lot. I was going to ask loads more questions on that. Like, how do we do that? But um, I, won't <laughs> keep, <laughs> I won't keep you guys any longer, but maybe come back for another episode on that. Because um, I'd love that. I'd love to do like deep dive more into the sales and marketing alignment. I bet there's, I feel like there's so much to unpack. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's hard to get right. It's difficult, but it's, it's so worth it. And it's very possible. It's not easy, but possible. Yeah. Cool. Well, great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, my f- new favorite duo. Thank you for joining <laughs> me. And um, yeah, let's have you back on the podcast soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Have a great day.